Welcome to the Equipping You in Grace podcast, hosted by Dave Jenkins. The Equipping You in Grace podcast is a podcast about helping Christians develop a biblical worldview in a conversational tone about issues inside and outside the church. Now, for today's episode, let's join our host, Dave Jenkins. Welcome back to the Equipping Young Grace podcast. My name is Dave, and I'm the host for this podcast. And with me today, I have my friend, Dr. Beaky. Dr. Beaky, welcome back to the Equipping Young Grace podcast, sir. Great to be with you again, Dave. Yeah, it's wonderful to talk with you, sir. Um, can you catch us up on what's happening in your life, marriage, ministry, and what are you working on ministry project-wise? Sure. Big news in my life, I suppose, is that I'm feeling energetic again after going through COVID. Um, that was, uh, it became a rather harrowing experience for me for several days. I, I kind of had a period of three or four days there where I had just all I can call is the dark night of the soul. Like I couldn't pray, I couldn't connect with God. It was just everything was dark and uh, couldn't see a future. It was just really kind of overwhelming for me. And then the Lord brought me out of that. And I've been recuperating, and now I I feel like I feel more have more feeling for for Him and for people and more love than ever before. So I've gone through some. And I'm not a kind of an emotional guy that goes through lows and highs very often, but um, my wife had it as well. But she just had very few symptoms, and that was God's kind to me. She could um, dote on me that way. <laughs> um, in, in terms of our, our family, four and a half years ago, we had no grandchildren. And two weeks from now, we're expecting our seventh grandchild. So all three of our kids are having children this year. We got one to go in about two weeks. And that's wonderful. Absolutely wonderful. God's covenant mercies are, are great. Mm, amen. And well, then in terms of ministry, I um, in about six weeks from now, I'll, I'll, I'll be 68. And the day I was 34, I was ordained in my, in my church. So on that day, December 9, I will have spent half of my life as pastor of the Grand Rapids Heritage Reform. So that's a bit of a landmark. Um, but I love I love my church and I love the seminary. And I love the Reformation Heritage Book Ministry. I, I just want to do all three as long as I can. Reformation Heritage Books, a seminary is going great, by the way. Reformation Heritage Books, we're, we just bought a new building. We're going to close on it in early December. It's about a $2 million building with 44,000 square feet. So we'll finally have room for uh, this, this, this ministry. In terms of my own writings. Reform Systematic Theology, of course, is uh, coming out right right now, volume two. And then volume three is at the is at the crossway being edited right now. And we're working, Paul Smalley and I, on volume four. And then with Dr. Michael Barrett, I wrote a, we wrote a 500-page book on holiness that Christian Focus is publishing. And that's coming out, uh, that's at the printer right now. And I've got two smaller books from Free Grace Press at the printer right now. Uh, Calvin on God's Sovereignty and Predestination and The Christian Teacher as, a, as an Office Bearer just 80, 90 page books. Oh, awesome. Wonderful. Well, I'm very thankful that you're doing better, sir. That That's good news. Praise the Lord. So can you uh, catch, uh, can you tell us about this book that you wrote with Paul Smalley, Reformed Systematic Theology, Volume 2, um, you know, why you guys wrote it and how you hope it'll be received? Right. So the whole set is four volumes and each volume is about um, 1,200 to 1,300 pages. And so this volume two is on man and Christ, the doctrine of man, which we call anthropology 
anthropology and Christ, which we call Christology. We're writing this set of books for beginning level in seminaries, and we're hoping it will be translated in every major language in the world for seminaries all around the world. It's also written for pastors, of course, and academic people as well, hopefully can use it, even though it's not overly academic, but also educated lay people. And our idea was to do about 600 pages on every major section of Christian doctrine, like the doctrine of man, doctrine of Christ. So it'll be a full textbook for a seminary classroom for their reading assignment. At the same time, it would be a book that, uh, you know, educated lay people could use. A guy, a guy came up to me and said, we're using volume one in our 11th grade religion course in high school. And he said, the students can handle it because we, we do use some, some so-called big words, but uh, we define them and students can follow it and so on. So, so that's exciting. So what we do, uh, if I may just say this a moment, in each chapter, we first, we look at each doctrine of the Bible and we say, what does the Bible say about this? That's number one. Number two, what does, what was said about this doctrine in church history and both the errors and the truth? And then number three, how, how is this doctrine experienced in the soul and then practically applied? And that's a closing section of each chapter so that the goal is by the end of the chapter, you want to break out in doxology, which is number four. We give you a, a poem or a hymn, and we want you to end on a high note of, of praising God. Yeah, yeah, that's that's good. This, this, I mean, this this series already is probably my favorite systematic theology, and I, I probably have probably two dozen systematic theologies. Um, and this, Wonderful. Is, this is already my favorite, favorite series and uh, favorite systematic theology volume, because it's, it's so helpful um, for all the reasons that you said. Um, and, and the approach, as we talked about last time, head, heart, hands is just spot on. So I really appreciate you guys' work on that. So Okay, thank you. Mm-hmm. How important is a solid understanding of the doctrine of man for the Christian life? Well, the doctrine of man is very interesting because it's the one major doctrine that everybody's interested in because everybody wants to know, who am I? <laughs> Being essentially selfish. Um, but it is important to know who we are, who we are in the image of God. I mean, just think of all the debates right now about abortion and uh, who you are. Well, if you're conceived in the image of God, of course, abortion is murder. There's no ifs, ands, or buts about it. No, no way out of it. So, yes, we take the position, of course, the biblical one, that we are the climax of creation and that God value man greatly. So we see every human being as of inestimable value. But also the doctrine of man is very important in relationship to other doctrines as well. How do you realize your need of Christ if you don't understand the um, doctrine of man and our sinfulness? So that that's critical. And uh, how do you understand the church if you don't understand man's need for, for fellowship and and unity. And then we also study the doctrine of man because it relates to um, all kinds of academic disciplines, psychology, sociology, the whole concept of suffering and why man's body and soul work together in suffering and how that functions and what does suffering mean for the people of God and so on. And then all kinds of implications for various uh, contemporary crises. Uh, why is my life so so painful and confusing? What? How, how am I different than, than an animal? Uh, we just talked about you having to put down your dog. And what does it mean that we have souls and animals don't? And how can we know what's right and wrong? Isn't everything just relative? Why are we in such a mess today? Uh, and how does that relate to our human nature? Where is our world going? Do we do we have cause for hope? Uh, all of these questions come forward in, in anthropology. And finally, it also impacts our, our practical ministry uh, as, as pastors and in the church life. Uh, shepherds must know their sheep. If we have a distorted view of human nature, a too 
optimistic view or too pessimistic view, or if we over-spiritualize our understanding of people, or, or if we think they're driven by emotions only and not by cognitive thinking, we will misunderstand our people. So anthropology benefits all Christians in ministry. We need to, if we're going to serve people, we need to know who they are and what their need, deepest needs and problems are. That's really well said. How should Christians respond to attacks on gender? Yeah, that's a huge question. Uh, we should tell people lovingly and graciously and firmly that uh, we cannot invent our own reality, that men are men and women are women, mm. and that to separate gender from biological sexuality, as exhibited in anatomy and genetics, is to, is to live in an illusion. And we also must appeal to the Holy Scriptures to show them that God ordained two genders according to biological sex. I mean, Genesis 1:27 is, of course, the classic text here. God created man in his own image, male and female, created he them. So although the fall of man has brought disorder to our lives, resulting in some cases in personal confusion about gender, we only magnify that confusion when we encourage or don't discourage boys to think of themselves as girls and girls to think of themselves as boys. So instead, we should compassionately help those suffering gender confusion to see the goodness of their created body and their God-given gender, and then call them to submit to God's will by faith in Christ the Savior. So if you meet people that are suffering from gender confusion, try to help them to see that Christ also suffered in this fallen world, and he did so for our sakes because he loves sinners like us, and his goal is to unconfuse us, <laughs> not to confuse us. Yeah, so it's crucial, crucial for people in our time to see that happiness does not come from pursuing whatever you want to be and whatever you want to do, but rather by denying yourself and following Christ. That's the way to gain life in, in time and in eternity. That, that is so good. And I, I could, you could take that and apply it to pornography too, calling, calling, calling men to be men, uh, men of God, you know, by, by through union with Christ and women to be uh, women of God through union with Christ and, and to fight against the flesh um, yes. and those, those types of things for all the same reasons that you're, as you were talking, I'm just thinking that applies to pornography, to, to everything calling. And that is such an important point because uh, one of the things I think that we don't do very well is, is to, is to highlight that specific thing in, in talking about it. I hear a lot of talk about, well, you combat this using this strategy and whatever, and those strategies can be helpful, but we have to have that understanding of what you just said. That is so absolutely critical. So dead on, so important. I just, I see that out there in, in the, in the books that I read on the subject and we have to focus on, I think you have to focus on what you just said so well um, to, to call people to be who they're made to be by God and, and who we are in Christ. That That's how they're going to find victory over those things. So what you said is just so very important. So why does it matter that Adam is a real person who lived in real history? Not, not a uh, controversial question at all, sir. <laughs> well, for a number of reasons, uh, and I lecture to the students, I actually have, uh, I give them eight reasons. Uh, I won't give, give our listeners that many. But first of all, the historical Adam is a basis of mankind's nobility. Um, if Adam is not real and Eve is not real, and those are just imaginary people, that whole idea of them being created in the image of God and being the apex of the whole creation that was all ready for them um, loses all of its steam. So when you don't embrace the historicity of Adam, the net effect is it won't be long before you will no longer embrace mankind's incredible nobility. Secondly, the historical Adam is the root of mankind's unity. We had a 
daughter, when she was in first grade, she came home from school one day and she said, hey, dad, I realized I'm, I'm related to every single person in my class. And I said, really? How, how's that? And I thought she'd say, you know, we're all one in, in Adam. But she said, uh, we're all related to Noah. <laughs> Because Noah, when he came out of the ark, of course, was the only family left. And well, that's true too, I said to her, but then I tried to explain to her about Adam. We are all one in in, in Adam. And then once we realize that, you see, that that's, for example, the whole question of racism. Uh, that's huge in maintaining the historicity of Adam. Uh, my brother, my black brother and sister came from Adam. I came from Adam. You came from Adam. So we're, we're all created in, in God's, as part of God's nobility. So we need to treat each other with uh, with love and uh, no suspicion and, and that type of thing. Thirdly, the historical Adam is the foundation of gender relationships, which we just talked about. And then fourthly, the historical Adam is the agent of mankind's fall. So there's two things that my dad used to pound into me as a boy that are important. The guilt of Adam's sin, he used to write it on a chalkboard, is imputed to us. So we're guilty of it. Psalm 51. The pollution of Adam's sin is passed on to us from our parents. So we have a twofold relationship with Adam. And both of those relationships demand that he be a real person. He's our representative in the covenant. And when he fell, we fell. So there's a direct link to a real man named Adam who was as real as the first Adam as our second Adam, our last Adam, Jesus Christ, is real to the redeemed. And that's that's very, very important. If the first Adam is not real, it won't be long before liberals who deny the historicity of Adam will be denying the historicity of the last Adam, Jesus Christ. And then we have no salvation at all. Mm-hmm. And fifthly, historical Adam, in some ways, and it's too complex to, to talk about that all here, but in some ways is a type of mankind's savior. Um, and this first Adam representing us and falling but then being redeemed, talking to his children and the godly line continued in the line of Seth points to Jesus to come because from the loins of Adam and Eve, the Messiah would be born. And um, well, that's just five reasons why historicity of Adam is important. Yeah, what you said, all those points are so, so critical because I mean, if there is no real Adam in real history, as you just said, I mean, there's no Christ. I mean, that's Romans 5, 12 through 21, right? Yes. Um, so, you know, in many other places, Jesus treats Adam as a real person. And so then you get into all sorts of problems with, um, as we talked about with your view of man, and, and then you get into, we're talk about sin. I mean, it's just a, it's like a domino effect. I mean, you deny Adam, you, you have to deny the doctrine of man, the doctrine of sin, then you deny, if you do that, you deny the personal work of Christ. And I mean, at, at, at a certain point, then you have no Christian theology. I mean, because you then you have no if Christ didn't come and die, then you don't have a reason for him to come again and to establish that kingdom and, and to do all those things. So I mean, yeah, it's just it's tragic that that people deny this. They think he's just some myth or some uh, yeah a myth or um, those types of things. It's just it's tragic to me. I don't I don't even I've, I've studied it, but I, I don't understand how you how you go there <laughs> based on the text. The text says what it says and it means what it means and so to deny it is that's that's silly you know i mean it's that's being that's being generous but i know but it feels silly yeah well we we need to remember that all these doctrines in the bible hang and fall together and i think that's what you're pointing out yeah that's right that's right how does a solid understanding of sin help the church
church? Well, the doctrine of sin, of course, is when we study the doctrine of man, after we study his creation, his exalted place, and the covenant relationship, and so on. And then we turn to how man has fallen, and we talk about sin and what it is, something that misses the mark of our creation, uh, which is the original meaning of the major word for sin. Well, this helps the church in a number of ways to understand man in all his different stages. There was a man named Thomas Boston who said, uh, man's relationship to God and to fellow man can best be understood by the word righteousness. Mm. See, sin is a lack of righteousness. Mm. It's flying in the face of righteousness. He said, you have your original state of righteousness in Adam. Then you have your fallen state into sin, state of unrighteousness. Then you have regeneration, the state of the new birth where um, you are restored, not in a perfect sanctifying righteousness, but you're restored in a perfect justifying righteousness. And then you have eternal righteousness in heaven, which you'll also be sanctified perfectly and have a total perfect righteousness. Well, especially those stages two and three are important to understand what we are in our sinful state without Christ and then what we are, even though we're still sinners, but what we are in Christ as redeemed people. And so the doctrine of sin helps us to see our need for the Savior, helps us to cry out, give me Jesus else I die. And then it drives me to him and helps me to find my, my whole life in him. And the more I find my life in him, the more I'm conformed to his image, the more the church has helped because really that's the church's ultimate goal that its members might reflect Christ in this needy world. Amen. Well said. How, how does a good understanding of Jesus as prophet, priest, and king help Christians today? Okay. So the doctrine of man then transitions naturally because of our great need into the doctrine of Christ. And probably we spend more pages in this book on Christ as office bearer than anything else because it's just so, so important. It covers such a vast field. And each one of the offices of Christ, or should I say the threefold office of Christ, because they're all one in him, each one of these are absolutely needed by a sinful man and woman uh, if we're to be really redeemed and prepared for heaven. The first office is, of course, prophet, which uh, refers primarily to Jesus as a teacher. We need him teaching us all the time, don't we? I mean, it's incredible how easily we can err, or if we don't have the Bible, or we don't believe the Bible, we just go off on our own tangents. I, I mean, I need Jesus every day to teach me and correct me, to rope me in. I need him as my prophet constantly. And that's why I need to be in the Word every day, because the Word is his book. His, through the, the Word of God, the, the Spirit of Jesus is teaching us God's truth. This is the infallible, inerrant, precious, beautiful, life-transforming Word of God. So I need him as prophet. Secondly, I need him as priest, because a priest does three things. He sacrifices, he prays, and he blesses. And um, that's the Old Testament scenario of temple worship. Well, Jesus came to fulfill that whole system of worship, to rend the temple in twain, as it were, to rend the veil in the temple, and to um, to have what we have now, where we can go directly to God through Jesus, and not just the priest come into his presence. And so, as a priest, I need him in all three capacities, because I can't, I can't pay for my own sins. They're innumerable, and nothing I do is ever perfect. So, God can't accept payment from my hand. But Jesus' sacrifice is a perfect sacrifice. He's the priest who sacrifices, and he sacrifices himself. And then, the priest would take the sacrifice and go inside the holy place and offer up prayer with the incense 
So Jesus is the only one who can really offer up perfect prayers for me and intercede for me and keep me. He ever lives to make intercession for us at the right hand of the Father, Hebrews 7.25, which means in all the shortcomings of my prayers, I can flee to him as the great high priest who prays for me and will not forsake me. And then the priest would come back out and bless the people that brought the sacrifice, pronounce the ironic blessing of Numbers 6.24 through 26, the Lord bless thee and keep thee, and so on. So Jesus is always blessing us from the right hand of the Father with temporal and spiritual and eternal blessings. And we need all three. Couldn't survive in this life without his temporal blessings. And we need his spiritual blessings, certainly, to make us right for glory. And we need his eternal blessings so we can be with him forever. And then as king, well, there's a lot of attributes of his kingship, but um, two of the most important is that he he's a wise king, and he shows us his way and guides us, makes us willing to walk in his ways. And he's a defending king. He will defend us from all kinds of enemies that we are powerless against if we don't have his powerful help as king. And yeah, much more could be said there. But I, I think I'm, I'm trying to give you the feeling that out of the womb of his threefold office, all our needs, all our spiritual needs, our temporal needs, our eternal needs are met. I have a sermon called, Who Can Meet All Your Needs? And the answer is Jesus as prophet, priest, and king. Wonderful answer, brother. Wonderful answer. How important is understanding the high priestly ministry of Jesus for the Christian? Oh, I'm so glad. I'm so glad you're asking this question, Dave. Um, I say to my students often, the high priestly ministry of Jesus is the most underrated doctrine in all of the Reformed faith and, and, and other, other aspects of branches of Christianity as well. And I'm going to just focus for a moment with you on one of my favorite doctrines from his high priestly ministry, that is his, his constant intercession for us. And I want to just look at that with you just a moment from an experiential perspective. So here's two preachers. One preacher says, you know, this is a wonderful doctrine. Jesus is at the right hand of the Father, and he's remembering his people. Take comfort from that, people of God. That's wonderful. It's true. But here's how you would, how we try to approach this more experientially in our book and how I think preachers should preach it. Have you ever realized what it means that Jesus Christ is the right hand of the Father for you, brother, sister? Interceding for you from moment to moment. He ever lives. That means every tick of the clock, tick, 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 tick. He's interceding. He's praying for you. He's praying for you. Praying for you. You say, well, how can he do that? Well, we can't comprehend that because we're just mere men. We can only remember one person at a time. But he's infinite in his capacity. He remembers his entire bride, all those who love him at once. But he also remembers each one individually as if they were his only child because he's infinite. And so the beauty of his intercession, his high priestly intercession, is that we can never fall out of his hands. We can never fall out of his heart. He's ever living to make intercession for us. So when I'm overwhelmed, even when I'm in the dark night of the soul with COVID, as I was telling you about. I mean, in my darkest hours, I, I try to cling to that, you know, even though my prayers seem to be at their wit's end. I know he's praying for me. He's still praying for me. And I, even times when I can barely get the word Lord out, he's remembering me at the right hand of the Father. This is hugely comforting because his prayers never fall to the ground unanswered. And so we have all our comfort in this high priestly ministry of Jesus Christ. Yeah. Yeah. You know, my mouth, my parents, my mom has Alzheimer's and my dad has dementia and you know, that's hard because after work every day, I, I call them and talk to them, see how they are. And they live, I live in California. They live in Seattle area. And so, you know, uh, it's hard. And afterwards, I have to remind myself, Jesus 
is in control of of what's happening to my parents right now. It's it's yeah. not unknown to him. He knows it, and that's the most like you were saying. That's the most comforting thing in the world because he they're both Christians, so they're being interceded for by Jesus. I mean, I'm praying for them too. I pray with them and encourage them in the faith and those things. But this this what we're talking about the back in about uh, I think it was 2014. I was studying Hebrews, and that was just so. This is around the time I found out my dad had uh, dementia. And that was just so pivotal for me. I knew about it, you know, but until you really dive into it and study it, that was just so meaningful for me because it, it strengthened my faith. It helped me to realize what I just said, that Christ was make is making intercession for me, for my dad. He knows what's happening. And you know what that does is it gives us peace. It should give us peace if we're trusting the Lord. Um, and sometimes we just need to say even, Lord, help me to trust you, you know, because it hurts. And, you know, losing a family member, losing a pet, whatever, it's it's hard dealing with a difficult situation. But we have one who always lives to make intercession for us. And so Amen. that means that we can, he summons us before his throne. He invites us. And so if that's you today listening, I just want to say that is the most encouraging thing that that your Lord who knows you and bought you by his own blood, um, he invites you to go to him. So like me, I'm preaching to myself here. So um, go go to Jesus and and take those cares and those burdens because that's what I have to do. That's what Dr. Beaky has to do. That's what we all have to do. Mm. Well, you know, here's a here's a very important question. The other questions are important, but this one is is pivotal. I think how should Christians respond to attacks on penal substitutionary atonement? Yes, there are many attacks uh, against penal substitutionary atonement. The sound doctrine is itself the answer to the attacks made against it. Uh, Penal substitutionary atonement is not an act of sinful violence by God, but it's an act of justice that flows out of his very nature as a righteous judge so that he punished his son or he took all the hell that we all deserved as believers and put it upon his son. In his infinite capacity, undergirt with his divinity, he was himself a sacrifice in his human nature for our sin. So people who claim that God could simply forgive sins without the penalty falling upon some substitute. Really haven't understood what the Bible says about God, about his justice, his retributive justice. So penal substitutionary atonement is not unjust because the Father's not arbitrarily counting some people's sins against an innocent man, but he's treating Christ for what he really is. The surety, the representative, the substitute who is one with his people. So penal substitutionary atonement is not cosmic child abuse. Some people have blasphemously said because the son freely chose to pay this awesome sacrifice on behalf of his people. He wasn't forced into this work. He did it voluntarily. And nor is penal substitutionary atonement a legal fiction, like some say. For God only applies Christ's atonement when the Holy Spirit actually joins people to Christ by faith, making them one mystical body in union with their righteous Lord. So this is a precious doctrine. He died for me. He gave his blood for me. He obeyed the law for me. So by his double obedience of pain for sin and obeying the law. God can be just and justified, and I am justified when I, by faith, believe in Christ alone by his Holy Spirit. And the two things, therefore, that I cannot do for myself, I can never pay for the infinite depth of my own sins. I can never obey the law perfectly. He does for me, and by faith when I trust in him, you see, his righteousness, is his atonement is then imputed to me, and my sins are imputed to him, and I'm saved. And he's my substitute. So this is the grandest, most glorious 
greatest doctrine in all the Bible, and we need to treasure it, not impugn it. Amen. I mean, when you when you look at it, even from the types and the fulfillments and the prophecies and all of it, I mean, it all pointed forward to Jesus paying the penalty, as you said, in our place and for our sin. You know, it wasn't what we 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 don't we don't get what we deserve, which is hell and damnation. Uh, we we get grace and we get mercy, and we get more even more than that. We get Christ Himself and all of His person and work and and uh, and the glory of of all that He is. And and so when people deny penal substitutionary atonement, what they're doing is is they're even just denying that everything you said. They're beyond that. They're denying the glory of His person and and the beauty of His work uh, for us. So that's that's just shocking, you know, and and also telling. Well, what is the role of what is the role of suffering in the life of the Christian? Yes, God God has a whole variety of reasons why his people need to suffer. He expounds those perhaps most theologically and beautifully in Hebrews 12 where he says you'll be you'd be an illegitimate child if you if you didn't suffer. Uh, what God is saying here is he matures us and makes us more like Christ through suffering. Not suffering that gives us merits but suffering that we experience flowing out of Jesus. And that suffering does a lot of good for us. Imagine imagine your life if you never suffered. You'd be a spoiled brat and so would I. Um, so what does God do with suffering in the life of the Christian? Well, first of all, he awakens us through suffering. We suffer because we realize what sinners we are, and he awakens us to our need. So that's already a sobering effect of suffering and sorrow. And then he, he leads us to Jesus. Um, and as we live out of Christ and we mature, we do so through being in the school of obedience. And the school of obedience means we need to suffer from time to time because we'll, we're prone to go our wrong way even after we're saved. And then too, suffering is important so that we learn that we're under our Father's hand, as Hebrews 12 says, and not under God's judicial wrath, because the judicial wrath has already been poured out on his son. So we're under our Father's loving hand, who chastens us to mature us. And then we also need this suffering to have more communion with Christ in his sufferings. And it's only when we partake of the sufferings of Jesus that we can really connect with him in the Garden of Gethsemane and the Hall of Gadbatha and, and the Cross of Golgotha. And finally, um, suffering helps us to glorify God more by faith and to persevere in obedience, even when uh, the going gets tough. God gives us grace to do that. And so when we become suffering soldiers in the army of King Jesus, we actually are more conformed to his image and weaned away from this world and ripened for glory. Mm. Amen, brother. Amen. Where can uh, people go to find out more about your work online, either on social media or otherwise? Yeah, okay. Yeah, I'm, I'm on most of these things. My, my Facebook, my Twitter, and my blog are all just Joel, Joel Beakey, and you can easily Google them. Um, you can also reach me through my, uh, my email, my most common means of communication, joel.beakey at prts.edu. Yeah, you could also reach me through the seminary, through my congregation, Heritage Reformed Congregation on Rapids, or, or Reformation Heritage books, but that, those would be the best. Yeah, wonderful, brother. You know, there's a lot that we could really dive into about these topics. I know we're only scared 
skimming the surface, but just as we wrap up, do you want to give our listeners a few takeaways? Yes. Well, I would say buy, buy Reform Systematic Theology Volume 2, and the best place to do that is at heritagebooks.org. We've got a special on it right now. It's just come out, coming out um, this week, and it's at 50% off, so a $65 book for $32.50. You can't beat that. And uh, read The Doctrine of Man, so you would appreciate all the more The Doctrine of Christ. And when you get to The Doctrine of Christ, I hope you'll just be overwhelmed with the glory and the beauty of our precious Savior. There's nothing in the world like Jesus Christ. And uh, it was a joy to work with Paul Smalley on this volume, um, The Depths of Sin and the Heights of Grace in Christ. And if you feel as a Christian, and sometimes you don't have much connection with Jesus personally, experientially, please get this book and read it. I think it can be a great blessing for your soul. Well, brother, we I thank you so much for your time, for your continued great work that you're doing. You're an encouragement and a blessing to many people and to me personally. So thank you, sir. Thank you, Dave. Good to be with you. You too. Thank you for listening to the Equipping You in Grace podcast. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe, rate us on the app, and share this with your friends and family on social media. If you want to find us on social media, you can find us on Twitter at Servants of Grace, on Instagram at Servants of Grace, or by searching at Servants of Grace on Facebook. You can also find this episode and many others like it on the front page of our website, servantsofgrace.org.